Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the weekly podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury, and today I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, editor-in-chief. Stephen Hansen, director of Biopharma Intelligence. And Selena Koch, executive editor. On today's podcast, BioCentury's third quarter financial markets preview finds... The worst of the bear market fading into the rearview mirror. But what are the indicators to watch for a recovery? And we've got a Lily double header. I guess not surprising, but we've got final Denonimab data in Alzheimer's. And Lily did a rather sizable deal in obesity late last week, taking out Versanis. But first, the early bird rate to attend or present at the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit ends July 27th. The event is in October in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Don't miss your chance to meet the CEOs of Innovative China Biotechs in the Boston area. Find out more at BioCenturyEastWest.com. All right, we've just published our quarterly preview. There was a robust rebound in the second quarter. I can't believe I'm saying that. And the biotech sector appears poised for a more constructive rest of the year as it charts a path to recovery. That is what our colleague Edwin Jang and Stephen found as they were interviewing bankers and investors. I want to bring in Stephen. Stephen, uh, what brought you guys to this conclusion? Thanks, Jeff. In my conversations with buy-side investors and, and bankers, one of the comments that kept coming up unprompted from them was that this is a quote-unquote sort of healthy market, that we're in a healthy situation. Health was, was sort of the recurring theme from a lot of these investors. And I think what they mean by that is not that uh, we're not in the you know late 2020s, early 21s, sort of overhyped market where everything is you know going up 100% regardless of what's happened. We're not in the terrible <laughs> you know days back in you know middle and late 2022 where you could have the best phase three day in the world and your stock would still go down because people would be you know just looking for a way of getting out of your stock. Um, so it's it's sort of this happy medium, I guess, is where where people kind of feel like the market's at right now where. Like we've seen today, BridgeBio, Argenix both had positive phase three data. Both stocks went up significantly on the news. So companies and investors alike are being rewarded for positive data. We're seeing companies able to raise money on the back of positive data. I mean, we even saw last week a opportunistic follow-on get done for the right stories. So overall, I think it's a market where if you have the data and you have a profile that kind of fits um, what investors are looking for, which is more sort of late stage or fit sort of certain themes like immunology, then, you know, this, this can be a market that really works for you. Right. And that wasn't the case uh, just almost a few months ago, right? We were seeing positive data and stocks not benefiting from it, right? No, Jeff, you're right. There, you know, there was a time, you know, a few months ago, maybe even sort of at the end of last year, where catalysts, um, you know, you had a positive catalyst and you weren't getting rewarded for that. So I think that's part of why investors are viewing this market as as more healthy. That's right. We have some of the statistics around follow-ons in the story. If you all are interested out there, um, the number this quarter versus the past, 
and each company's post-market performance. Uh, but in addition to follow-ons picking up the number, the post-market performance, I think there was another follow-on related indicator people brought up with you, which is about new investors coming in to support those deals. Do you want to talk about that, Stephen? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Lena. Yeah. So that was another factor was, you know, because a lot of times for these deals, you might have insiders that are, you know, want to see the company be able to continue and, you know, want to support the company. And so you oftentimes might be able to kind of get a a deal done that is fully backed by insiders. But what really kind of provides some momentum for some of these stocks is when you start to see new investors coming in. And so I know that for a couple of deals, I think the um, Moon Lake immunotherapeutics deal that got upsized uh, a couple of weeks ago, I believe they saw some pretty significant new investor participation there. And then even looking at IPOs, we saw two upsized deals get done from Apogee and um, Sajimets. And, you know, upsizing those deals indicates that there was, you know, more demand coming there than just from the existing investors. So that's another positive sign as well. Yeah, I mean, I really do think that the theme across the last few times we've discussed this on the pod and what we're hearing is this flight to quality. And, you know, we've talked about the word healthy quite often, but I feel like what's actually happening now is a flight to quality, meaning that there are quality companies out there. And to to Selena's point, I think people are starting to define how are they going to, you know, what are the markers they're looking at that will give them faith that this is a quality company worth investing in? I think clinical data is a fairly obvious parameter, but like you say, who the other investors are and have you got new ones? And some of the, I don't know if they're nuances around the edge, but some of the other parameters can be really important. And I think it's important because I don't know, are we going to, are we saying the follow-on window is open? Is that like open, open now? And the, the IPO it's, one seems to be like cracked ajar. <laughs> is kind of how I'm looking at that data. So I think the follow-on window has been open for a while if you have a good catalyst or a good event. Fair. The, yeah. the, the, the opportunistic follow-on window, I think, is cracking in the same way that the IPO window is cracking. And It'll be interesting. So I had several people, you know, mention to me that they actually think some of the highest quality sort of private companies, so the ones that have sort of the big blue chip backers, they're actually maybe going to want to, or their expectation was that they might actually, because they can afford to, because they can afford to just do another extension, you know, maybe give their companies a little bit more money, they can afford to wait a little bit longer and kind of see how the market plays out over the second half, maybe more with an eye to doing a little bit of a bigger splash with a JP Morgan type IPO, you know, come, come the start of 24. And then just looking at the IPOs like Apogee did quite well in its first day of trading. And so I'm just curious to see whether that changes how some people are thinking about taking on an IPO in the second half of the year after Labor Day. Uh, Stephen, I know that some people are a whole lot more optimistic about M&A this year as well. What's your take? I think there were a few deals worth uh, more than a billion in takeouts, but how excited are you about the uh, M and A situation right now? Uh, yeah, no, I think this is a good this is a good market for M and A because you've got situations I think where you can easily find a place where it really is a win win for both parties, where you have a really healthy return for a smaller mid cap biotech management team, but you also still have plenty of farmers that are looking to do bolt-on deals maybe that are going to maybe slide a little bit more under the radar for the FTC as opposed to doing these huge takeouts. No, I think there's a real 
a lot of expectation that we're going to see more of these M&A, and, and, and I think there's good reason to think so. All right. And the financial markets preview up on biocentury.com. It's chock full of charts by our colleague, Meredith Durkin-Wolf. So you can really get your hands into the data. Denonimab, Alzheimer's. It's really just been a, a year of Alzheimer's events. Selena is back on to tell us what the latest data mean. Well, for the longest time in this very long running story of um, amyloid and Alzheimer's, people have speculated that disease stage makes a huge difference in who's going to respond to therapy and who isn't. But a lot of it has been speculation backed by a lot of preclinical data and animals and whatnot, um, and just kind of like information about the disease. But now we have more clinical data, I think, to support this idea with the way Lilly structured its trial. So this is like all the recent trials, right? It's for early stage patients and thus from mild cognitive impairment to early dementia. Um, but even within that early population, Lilly used a biomarker strategy to kind of break them up into earlier and later disease stages. And what we see um, is that the later patients, those who already have high tau levels, they didn't respond. There's a bunch of efficacy endpoints that, that miss there for that subgroup. And then the earlier you go back, the stronger the responses with some quite robust responses very early. So that could mean a couple of things, right? We'll have to see how FDA look at those data. It could be that Lily ends up with a more restrictive label by virtue of running a more informative trial than, than we've seen for um, aducanumab or lecanumab. Or maybe not. Um, it also points in the direction of the importance of biomarkers that can find patients early, patients getting diagnosed early. So that so blood tests are going to be important for that. Digital biomarkers, maybe eventually. That's what I wanted to ask you about, Selena, because you know one of the things that's really confounded the drug development for so long has been, as we've talked about, biomarkers, but also even staging disease. It's, it's really, really difficult. And I know there's a lot of focus on blood-based biomarkers. I'm not actually sure what your thoughts are. We talk a lot, but I haven't actually talked to you about that. So what your thoughts are on how good the blood-based biomarkers are. But I think uh, almost inevitable progress that's likely to be made is in digital readouts. And, and you might be able to sort of elaborate on what some of those specifically are. I know that Najat Khan from J&J talked about this a little bit with Steve Usden on our recent Biocentury Show interview. So let's talk a little bit about where different kind of biomarkers can help the field advance. Right. So there's been a lot of work on blood-based biomarkers for diagnosing patients. And the idea there is generally to Correlate what happens in blood with PET scans or cerebral spinal fluid. So, so the question is, like, can a blood readout tell you what a PET image would tell you, right? And C2N Diagnostics has its CLIA certified one. So there's an expert working group on Alzheimer's of physicians who make appropriate use guidelines, right? And they just put out a document recently that says, okay, this is a really promising area, these blood-based biomarkers, but they're not validated yet. We can't recommend them just yet, but that'll come soon. You know, the data are looking looking good for blood-based markers. 
with amyloid coming first before tau blood-based markers. On the digital biomarker front, um, I think speech analysis is a really promising area that has some data behind it now. Um, beyond speech, the other types of digital biomarkers that are have the most data behind them and the realm of neuro, let's say, are sleep and movement, both of which could be relevant to Alzheimer's. So people already are tracking their sleep with or tracking their movements, you know, with wearable sensors. So it's not a big leap. It's maybe not that surprising that those two domains now have the most robust sort of clinical data behind them. And if you think about it, they've got their watches and their Fitbits and all this kind of thing. And, you know, we just also know now about the huge capability to interrogate very, very large data sets. You know, I don't think we can have a whole pod where we don't talk about AI and machine learning, can we? But, you know, I, I don't think it's really a stretch to imagine that within a short number of years, we will know so much more about these digital readouts and how they map onto diseases like Alzheimer's. And maybe we even, you know, we've talked for a long time about this, about the, the disease not really being one disease, that it'll get broken up into different types of subtypes. I think eventually it has to get broken up, yeah, with the deep phenotyping that you can get from these multimodal digital readouts, right, and the molecular side of it kind of coming together. All right, thanks for that, Selena. Uh, I want to bring Stephen back in. Stephen, you took a look at Lily's acquisition of Versanis. The deal's worth up to $1.9 billion. Why did Lily do this deal? I think, as we all know, Lilly is one of the <laughs> leading companies here in, in obesity, uh, with uh, Manjuro Trizepatide being their sort of flagship program for the moment. But, you know, very much like Novo, a lot of what they're targeting, a lot of what the late stage drugs that are coming now target are incretin pathways. So GLP-1, GIP, uh, glucagon, these are all sort of fit in a similar pathway where you're, you know, going after a similar sort of mechanism of going after appetite suppression, hormone release, these sorts of things. Versanis was developing a program that very much sits outside of that space. So their lead program, uh, Bimagrumab, they actually licensed from Novartis, targets active receptors to, to inhibit them. And really what they're trying to do is they're trying to go after essentially reducing fat mass without affecting lean muscle mass. This has been a growing sort of debate now that the obesity drugs have started to sort of take off commercially around whether there is uh, an issue in terms of the quality of the weight loss that you get from these GLP-1 drugs. Sort of phase three studies have kind of shown that of the, of the weight loss from a GLP-1 drug, typically might have anywhere from 20 to 40% might be lean muscle mass. And so what Bimagrumab is trying to do is trying to kind of reverse that and actually add lean muscle mass while having all of the weight loss come from fat content. For me, this whole field is, you know, one of these 20-year overnight success stories. Still feel like <laughs> it kind of crept up on us on, <laughs> on the field. And I still believe that even though there are these massive heavyweights of uh, Novo and and Lily in the field, probably some of the other farmers are going to get into it now. It's been de risk. But most importantly, I do think it's going to have this massive spurring of innovation. 
And I don't know that every small company thinks that they can go it alone and do those trials themselves, but the Vasanis route is a great one. They develop a molecule or a program against a different target. It's probably going to be hopefully synergistic, but differentiated. They get taken out by one of the big players that can do the huge trials. And Mm -hmm. I really hope we continue to see, you know, not just getting orals of the ones that are there, but also getting new mechanisms in there. Maybe we can have drugs that people don't have to take for the rest of their lives. I think the rebound is a big deal. It's not game over. It's not like obesity solves, just get the drugs out there at all. I think there's really a lot of space for innovation. I agree. And, you know, I I don't think this is going to become like IO, where every company is going to become an obesity company in some way, shape or form. Agree. But but I think this will definitely spur a lot of innovation on the side. But in the same breath, I don't have any reason to suspect that Lilly and Novo won't maintain this position as being a an aggregator of those innovations right. um, to a large extent um, because you know I, I think this bimagrumab and obviously Lily hasn't said this directly but you know the way I perceive it is I, I could envision them creating some sort of a combination therapy with Amonjar or some other sort of incretin-based therapy where the idea is you get even you get sort of synergistic weight loss with those two combined but you potentially have a higher quality weight loss that comes from that. And I think that is potentially what they're trying to do to differentiate from potential other mechanisms like. Stephen, I I know we've only got a minute left, so I have to ask you this and pick up on something. You don't think any of the other farmers are going to get in the game? Uh, Right now with the lead that Lily and and, and Novo had and the expertise that they have in this, in the Anchorton space, I would find it difficult to see how someone else could meaningfully challenge them for market share we'll go offline and make some odds about that shall we (laughs) sure we can do that we can do that find a bookie that can get us some odds (laughs) all right um and just to be clear we friendly friendly wagers friendly that's what that's true true. we do not bet on uh, (laughs) these companies we have very strict rules against that here at biocentury and talking about innovators like this uh versanis uh they raised their Series A in 2021. So relatively new company here, uh, backers Atlas Venture, Aditum Bio, and Medici. Well, Selena, Stephen, Simone, thanks for joining today. Thank you all for tuning in. And a shout out to Kendall Square Orchestra, which provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.